This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. This is a crowd podcast. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death of a Film Star. Episode 1, Heath Ledger. When the news breaks, his face is everywhere. It has been for weeks. The trailers, the posters, the teasers, they're time to coincide with Christmas to build the buzz for the summer. And when you see them, it's his face that stays with you. When the screen fades to black, as the billboards recede from view, Heath doesn't. He's seared onto your mind's eye. That face, smeared in white grease paint, a slash of red across the mouth, a shock of dark blue around the eyes, his hair lank, his face weathered, his limbs heavy. And somewhere deep within, a spark. A spark of chaos and energy so dazzling, so vital, it sets you on edge. You can't take your eyes away from it. Can't take your mind off it. It's shocking that Heath Ledger has been found dead. So when the news breaks, that's what you think of. 28 years old, Academy Award nominee for When a frantic 911 call is made from his loft apartment, that's the connection it makes. Heath as the Joker, the mania, the depression, the darkness, the death. When you take on a part so completely, it's hard to get out. The lines blur, things merge, actor and character meet and mix. Each changes the other, and if you're good enough, the audience can't see the seams. It's the oldest trick in cinema. The enduring magic, the sleight of hand, that leap in belief. But Heath's not that Joker, not the havoc and hysteria, or the madness and malice. He's another. Heath can leave it when the film wraps. He can shed that skin as easily as he puts it on, just as he always has. You see, when you're playing cards, the Joker is impossible to pin down. It defies definition. It could stand for any other card in the pack. And then it will morph again. It's constantly changing, confounding expectation. You can't take it at face value. 
And that's Heath. That's his Joker. Because he's an actor who doesn't play by Hollywood's rules. He's a man who doesn't follow suit. Sixty faces stare at Heath. This is not what you do at Guildford Grammar, not in 1996, not ever. Heath, shoulders heaving, stares back. The music dies away. He's just spun and slid across the stage in an impromptu dance routine. The aim isn't to entertain, it's to convince because the other dance class students don't want to dance, not really. At Heath School, cadets is the big thing. Teenagers stamping, shouting and saluting, swapping toy guns for the real thing. If you don't do it, you have to do something else. And some are so desperate, they'll even sign up for Guildford Grammar's first dance troupe. Guildford is in Perth, Australia. Perth's a solitary city jammed between the Indian Ocean and the outback. The whole reason it exists is for mining. Iron, oil, gold, aluminium. Out of the red dirt and burning heat, locals dig for their living, just as their fathers and grandfathers did. Perth is heavy industry, hard men and old-fashioned values. Work hard, play hard, don't think too hard. Heath's dad runs an engineering business. At the weekend, he races cars. He puts a young Heath in go-karts, and Heath's good. He wins a few races, tearing around dusty out-of-town tracks. Heath could follow the family, inherit the business, adopt the interests, and maybe he will if his parents stay together. Instead, when Heath's 11, they divorce. It isn't messy, it's pretty much as good as divorce gets. His mum and dad take the children on holiday together. Heath's welcome to stay with either, however long he wants. But Heath's world expands by far more than just another bedroom. He sees a truth, one that takes far longer to dawn on other children. For some, in fact, it never does. I realised my parents were just humans, he says. It wasn't the death of something, but the birth of something else. Heath sees a world of possibilities, choices his parents didn't even consider, let alone make. He takes up chess. He covers his room in abstract art. He plays Peter Pan in a school play. And he starts the dance troupe. Heath promises them what he has already realised. Performing can take them places. And he's right. A few months later, that reluctant audience are on stage alongside Heath. They are under stark white lights in a convention hall in Perth's biggest hotel. Heath's front and centre, all in black. Their show, A History of Fashion Through Time, wins first prize. But it's only a stop-off for Heath. At 16, he drops out of school leaves behind the cadets and the carts, jumps in the car with his friend Trevor with only a few dollars in his bank account, some cash for gas, and that's all he needs. This is how he sees Perth, 
that upbringing, what he's leaving and what he's chasing. Sometimes when you're in Perth, it feels like the earth really is flat, says Heath, and you're sitting right on the edge. See, Heath needs to be nearer the center where he can think thoughts that don't occur in Perth, where he can meet people and passions that don't live in his home city. So he and Trevor drive three days, two and a half thousand miles along empty roads under starry skies. They stop to sleep, eat and little else. And finally, they roll into Sydney. A city alive with new possibilities. Now the air is clear. You can smell the pines. The sun bakes down on a medieval jousting arena and far below on modern Prague. Extras mill around, horses snort and stamp. An American journalist floats through the crowd. He approaches an English actor. The actor has been on set for seven weeks, but he hasn't shot a single scene yet. That's what it's like when budgets get big. Everything else grows too. The sets, the casts, the time it takes to get anything done, the expectations. So the actor can spare a minute. The reporter wants to talk about the leading man. He asks the actor about Heath. The actor leans back, takes a second and says, the camera just relaxes on him. When the camera hits certain people, you can feel it sort of go, ah, that's okay. We're in good hands here. Not many people have that. It makes a star. And the actor's not the only one to notice. The film they're making together, A Knight's Tale, is released with a poster. It's Heath's face in close-up, eyes locked, jaw set. Below is the film's tagline, he will rock you. If you drive along Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, you see it. If you walk down any small town street, you see it. That shock of blonde hair, those high heavy cheekbones, those deep clear eyes. Heath's just 21. Just five years ago, he was on his road trip to Sydney, an unknown heading into the unknown. Now everyone wants a piece of him. Everyone wants a piece of that face. The previous decade, it had been Leonardo DiCaprio. His delicate boyish looks bringing in huge box office receipts. Teenage hysteria comes to the big screen and makes big money. Now every studio and executive wants to strike the same gold and Heath's perfect, a pin-up for less certain times. Four months after A Knight's Tale is released, four hijacked planes descend out of a clear autumn sky on America's east coast. It's an attack that changes the world in infinite, more important ways. But it changes Hollywood too. Heath's throwback looks are in. DiCaprio was boyish, almost ethereal. Heath's not that. Testosterone bleeds out of his performances. There's no vulnerability, no doubt. Instead, there's a quiet, surly certainty. A leading man who leads, 
An idol with the confidence the audience needs to feel. Just like James Dean gave them at the start of a simpler, colder war. That's how Heath comes to be sitting in front of a presentation. It's him, some studio bosses, film executives, and his agents in a gleaming LA office. The subject is him, Heath's career, and world domination. They map it out. A campaign for the next decade, so military precise. The tours, the publicity drives, the carefully chosen projects, the franchise blockbusters, Spider-Man is being made next year. It's his if he wants it, they say. The road-tripping kid from Perth is being offered the fast track to the A-list. The presentation finishes, and every face turns to Heath to read his reaction. Heath stands, excuses himself, and silently leaves for the bathroom. And once there, he explodes. His curses echo off the tiles. He punches the cubicle door. He stares into the mirror, looks at his face, his ticket to a world he doesn't want. This is what Heath feels. This is what he sees in the reflection. I started to feel like a bottle of Coke, he says. And there was a whole marketing scheme to turn me into a very popular bottle. And you know, Coke tastes like shit, but there's posters everywhere, so people will buy it. Those doubts aren't new. That resistance to his roller coaster rise was already there, but you don't see it in his performances, not on a big screen anyway. A year before, Heath strides out onto a TV set. A live band plays some blandly upbeat music. A live audience applauds. The talk show host, an elder statesman of the late-night chat circuit, stands to shake his hand. But Heath looks startled. So composed in character, he seems exposed when asked about himself. He fidgets, he laughs nervously, looks away from his questioner, offers a one-word answer. The interview lasts five awkward minutes. Then the host gratefully throws to Bon Jovi, performing on the roof of his Manhattan studio. Because Heath doesn't want to play Heath. He doesn't want to polish his own persona, to perfect the wisecracks, the anecdotes, the easy chat show charm. He knows the biggest stars end up playing one character more than any other, themselves. So Heath takes a different route, different roles. Characters so complex, so big, Heath can relax in their shadow. A prison warden, too sensitive for his death row beat. A British army officer, accused of cowardice. A Roman Catholic priest, mixed up in satanic ritual. And a cowboy in love. Angley's phone's strangely quiet. He's one of Hollywood's hottest directors. His last movie was Astonishing, a reworking of an old Chinese novel that was a multi-million dollar commercial and critical hit. Now he's casting for his next project. It's set in Wyoming, 
and Lee has some of Hollywood's biggest names in mind. But his phone is strangely quiet. Agents aren't returning calls. Their clients are turning cool after reading the script. And then it lands in Heath's hands. He's in the first-class cabin of a long-haul flight, travelling home to Australia for Christmas. Under the overhead reading light, Heath devours it in one sitting. And when he lands, he phones his agent. Not to back out, not to ask for time to think. Instead, he says it's the most beautiful script he's ever read. He's all in. A few months later, Heath wakes in his trailer. The sun on the top of the mountains is the first thing he sees. The river gurgling and babbling is the first thing he hears. The cast live on set. The Canadian Rockies are too remote for the daily commute. So he and his co-stars make breakfast for each other as they wait for the day's filming to set up. Each has their own reason for taking on Brokeback Mountain. Michelle Williams wants to escape the success of a teen soap. Anne Hathaway is breaking out of a pigeonhole as a princess. Jake Gyllenhaal has been a fan of the story for years. All are aware the film emerging from the Rockies has a quiet beauty of its own and the power that will make waves far beyond. The final scene is Heath's. He isn't a young cowboy, a swirling mix of anger, love and confusion anymore. He's a lonely middle-aged man. He stares at the shirt of his dead lover and the postcard of the mountain they shared years ago. His eyes fill with tears and the screen fades to black. The film is a sensation. A love story that sparks a culture war. Some cinemas refuse to show it. Whole countries ban it. Some see it as propaganda. Others see prejudice in their response. Everyone asks the question, have you seen it? For Heath though, the sex scenes with Jake are simple. This is how he approaches them. This is what he says when an interviewer asks him about a moment that so many actors shied away from. I guess you'd love for me to say that it was difficult, that I wanted to vomit, but the straight fact is, it was just another person. I've experienced love. I know the extent of love. We had to choreograph. It was definitely like walking on the moon for the first time. But it wasn't the butt of a mule. I was kissing a human being with a soul. Heath's view is not the laws. When the film comes out, only 16 of 50 US states have employment laws preventing gay people being blocked from jobs. Gay marriage is legal in just one, Massachusetts. It is only two years since the Supreme Court wiped out laws in 13 states that criminalized homosexuality. Gay rights are a modern fight over age-old principles, religion, freedom, justice, equality, America's founding values re-examined. Can a more perfect union be same-sex? It's all grand principles and high ideals, and then Brokeback Mountain comes out. A small story of love, loss, and pain. A film that captures the simplicity and messiness in every life. It nudges the needle 
It speaks of compassion, not constitution, of humanity, not history. It makes the political a little more personal. It's only a film. It's only four young people living out of trailers in the middle of nowhere. But it makes a difference. Heath hangs the Do Not Disturb sign over his hotel room door handle. He sits down, opens a notebook and starts work. Over the next month, playing cards and old comic clippings are pasted into the notebook. There are also howling hyenas and leering clowns. Clockwork orange thugs and punk rock icon Sid Vicious stare at him from its pages. And in between are Heath's notes, a frantic scrawl, sometimes in a small, tight hand, sometimes a single phrase in large capitals across a single page. He's searching, trying to unearth new life in an old character, and the search goes to some dark places. He lists things the Joker, his Joker, finds funny. Blind babies, landmines, AIDS, beloved pets in bad road accidents. By the time it comes to filming, Heath's in deep. His mind's a whirlwind, clicking through combinations of quirks to unlock new parts of the Joker. He gives an interview. The reporter finds a place to sit among the empty glasses and discarded clothes in his apartment. He says he's sleeping only two hours at night, that his brain won't let his body rest, that he took two sleeping pills last night when one didn't work, and still woke up an hour later. His Dark Knight co-stars see it. The exhaustion, the tension. Heath's hard to reach. He's always in private company. Him and his character locked together. But that's Heath. When he films Brokeback Mountain, he punches brick walls to capture his character's pain. Even off duty, he sleeps fitfully. That energy, that creativity, that relentless, restless mind is his gift and his burden. The Dark Knight shoot has been over for nearly three months when his masseuse climbs the stairs to his sprawling loft apartment. She knocks, rings his mobile, and gets no response. But that's not unusual. She lets herself in. She finds Heath in bed. She sets up the massage table and tries to rouse him. But his shoulder is cold. The medics only take minutes to arrive. But it doesn't matter how fast they get there. Heath's already dead. He has been for a while, his blood swimming with prescription medicine, pills to promote sleep, dampen nerves, and calm a cough his rundown body has struggled to shake off. Together, they slow his system to a standstill. Together, they gently snuff out that light within. Heath's just 28, his film career just a decade young, but with the power and variety that might take others a century. The final act plays out on a New York street. His body leaves the apartment building on a trolley, pushed by policemen, lit by the flashbulbs of waiting photographers. And in the days and weeks to come, 
Flowers and notes fill the sidewalk in memory of the man who was and the moments that will never be. But when you've done what Heath's done, your work lives on. Your characters touch lives long after the final credits roll. A year after his death, the director of The Dark Knight climbs onto the stage. It's his film, but not his award. It's Heath who's won a Golden Globe for his Joker. As the standing ovation settles back down, he composes himself. After Heath passed on, you saw a hole ripped in the future of cinema, he says. He will be eternally missed, but he will never be forgotten. And he's right. 2020, 11 years later, and a lot's changed. But there's always another award ceremony, and this time, there's another Joker. Joaquin Phoenix knows Heath's performance. How could he not? Before he agreed to play the part, it's all anyone asks him. How can he reimagine a role that Heath has made his own? He also knows Heath. They were close. You can see it in pictures of them together. While people around them make small talk at another glitzy evening, they laugh together, long, loud and free. A real connection. And he also knows death. Joaquin's own brother River, an actor and musician, died young, denying audiences what could have been. So as he accepts his award, Joaquin pays tribute to Heath, to the famous performance that looms over his own and to the private void that stretches beyond. He finishes his speech like this, really? I'm standing here on the shoulders of my favorite actor, Heath Ledger, he says. Thank you and good night. This episode of Death of a Film Star was written by Mike Henson and performed by me, Elroy Spoonface Powell, Spoon the Voice Guy. It was edited by Phil Brown. For research, we watched the documentary, I Am Heath Ledger, and read articles from the archives of the New York Times, Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, and The Times. The music we used is from our partner's BMG Production Music. If you want another podcast, check out our series called Death of a Rockstar, and look out for the episodes about Prince, Jeff Buckley, or Amy Winehouse. There'll be another episode of Death of a Film Star next Tuesday. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hey there, I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.
Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro, host of the podcast Pop Culture Confidential. Join me as I go way behind the scenes with some of the most influential people in entertainment and media. Hear actors such as Succession's Brian Cox talk about his favorite characters to play. There always has to be a mystery. The audience have to be in a situation where they want to know what's going on. Meet studio execs like Pixar chief Pete Docter and learn his secret on how he makes us cry. Emotion is our first language. And so many others who are defining popular culture, from Obama speechwriter David Litt to Top Chef host Padma Lakshmi. We don't often think about food politically, or we don't want to, but it really is. Join me. Search for Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com.